The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. Becky Griffin knows gardening connects future generations to agriculture and how they will benefit from that experience. Our children today need food and agricultural knowledge in order to yield wise policy decisions in their future. She talks about how a child's nutrition, wellness, and economic benefits increase along with test scores by being exposed to gardening. Becky has found that a child's natural curiosity of the outdoor world often leads to developing patience, curiosity, and creativity when being involved in school gardening. Becky Griffin is the Community and School Garden Coordinator for the University of Georgia Extension. She knows what it takes to have a successful school garden. We will explore the keys to starting a sustainable children's garden in this 18th episode of the Garden Question podcast, Gardening with Children. But first, this. TheGardenQuestion.com is an awesome website because we expand each podcast episode with accurate resources and links for gardeners. You can also listen to every single episode again as many times as you like. Think of it as an extension of the podcast at TheGardenQuestion.com. Becky, why is it important to involve our children in garden? First of all, we have to think about... We have a lot of adults who don't know where the food comes from. They may get confused when they go to the grocery store in January and they can't find a strawberry. Whereas those of us who garden know that we're not going to have decent strawberries in January. We have them at all. They're going to be on a truck that has been shipped across country for several days. One of the reasons is to raise educated consumers and knowing that these kids are also going to grow up to be policymakers. We want people making ag policy who actually know a little bit about ag. Those are the two first answers that come to mind. But on a personal note, I raised two daughters and they spent their growing up years in the garden. It's a way to have exercise and fresh air, learn patience, because we know all the seeds don't come up quickly. They learn good nutrition. When we get into the school gardening area, that's a whole nother issue where we have a whole lot of teaching opportunities there. What are the benefits you're seeing in having a school garden? There are studies out there that talk about test scores going up, believe it or not. For many years, we even took recess out of schools. So kids spent all their time just at a desk. Thinking about COVID, all those kids spent all that time just in front of a computer and were thinking that that wasn't the best learning opportunity for them. They're outside. They're getting fresh air. They can maybe run around a little bit. They can be curious. They have permission to show their curiosity and their creativity and how they want to grow things and how they want to design their garden beds. For teachers, it's another way to teach a concept. You can show them in a book, you can put it on the blackboard, but when you get out and look at it in real life, whether it's agriculture or nature studies or even history or geography, it comes to life out in the garden. How would you tie geography and history and any other area of the school curriculum into the gardening? Easiest answer really is, we'll take beans, for example. So we grow beans and as you plant them and you grow them, you can do lots of math. 
How many beans are in a pod? How many bean pods did we get per bean plant? How many beans do we grow per square foot? That type of thing. History and geography, where did those beans come from? How did they get to Georgia? Were they brought over on a boat? Did our ancestors bring them? Did the seed companies just import them? I know personally, I have a family heirloom bean seed called the Jonah bean seed that has been passed down for generations. And I use that when my kids were in school as a teaching tool and I hand that bean down. So that's another way to get history and geography and also literature and poetry. When I visit schools, sometimes I like to challenge them to do a special haiku poem called Ode to the Bean Plant. And it's Pretty funny, some of the things they come up with. What's a haku poem? Haku, yeah. It's the first line is seven syllables, the second is five, and the third is seven. And it usually like to incorporate a word in that like pow or wow or wham, some kind of action word in there. So the kids really get behind that. And they've created some fine odes to the bean. <laughs> yeah, I, I bet there are some really good, interesting poems with that. Oh, yeah. In this age of handheld devices, how do you engage children's interest in gardening? It's natural. I think our curiosity for the outside world is natural. By using more screen technology, you're just masking what is there. So removing those phones, removing those screens, and just letting them be in nature, you're going to pique that curiosity. You're going to have them enjoy the awe and the wonder of the outdoors. My specialty is beneficial insects. I tell the teachers that my goal is to have the students go from, ooh, it's a bug, to look at the tarsal claw on that bee. And inevitably, I get teachers send me videos and emails back about the budding entomologists they have in the second grade because they actually looked at an insect and was awed by it, by how it could fly and how it could move. And by taking away the screens and just letting them be in nature, hear the sound of a money plant in the wind, smell a beautiful rose or taste a basil plant, all of those things appeal to our basal nature. That's a the key. Take those screens away and get those kids outside. Actually experience it rather than watch it. Mm -hmm. And even as an adult, I am uh, in my mid-50s. There's not a day that goes by that I'm not out doing some sort of work in nature that I don't find something to have wonder or have awe about. Can you imagine being a kindergartner and you're all of a sudden you're turned loose in a school garden with butterflies and worms and prickly hollies and all sorts of things? It's beautiful to watch. What does a school garden look like? It really depends on the school. We have some school gardens that are huge and very involved that have different aspects to them. And those people have a lot of volunteer help and they maybe even have a school garden coordinator at the school. Those schools have math gardens. They maybe do uh, activities with the water department to filter rainwater. They have World War II victory gardens and colonial medicine chest gardens and wildlife certification gardens. Or you may have a smaller school that doesn't have as many volunteers and they may have four by eight beds, maybe one per grade level where the teachers get together and decide what we're going to do with that four by eight little plot of land for our grade. What age groups are you looking at primarily on the gardens? All grades. Some kindergarten ideas would be a sensory garden where they can touch and smell and taste and listen and feel the different plants like a lamb's ear, how soft that is and the prick of a holly and oats as they blow in the wind, how they sound. So from kindergarten all the way up through high school, and by the time they're in high school, they're looking at how do you make money growing food? 
How do we have a farmer's market and raise funds? How do we maximize our yields per acre or per, per garden bed? How do we bring in beneficial insects? How do we trap crop for pests? It varies from age group, but every age, there's something important and interesting to do in the garden. What kind of academic and community buy-in are you in your school gardens? Best case scenario, we have a garden that is supported by administrators, maybe a PTO or PTA subcommittee that helps organize volunteers from the community and parent volunteers. We have a community who donates materials, who may be sponsors events in the garden. I like schools to really stretch their imaginations in the garden. For example, if you're a school that has a really great chorus, and maybe the chorus went to Allstate this year, and you're very proud of that chorus, why not have singing in the school garden? So that brings in parents who maybe aren't aware of the school garden. It's another use for the garden. We've had singing in the garden. We've had art in the garden. We've even had drama departments who have their drama students do their speeches in the garden. We're using the garden for a lot of things, more than just how are we going to garden in the garden. We're using the garden to showcase a lot of the school activities. Tell us the process of starting a school garden. The first thing I would recommend is for someone to contact their local UGA extension agent because that extension agent has had experience in school gardens, I bet you. They can help you make sure that you're avoiding some of the pitfalls and the problems. The very first thing is to find out, do you have space? A lot of our schools are built brick buildings in the U shape. And I know you've seen those. I get a call. They want to have a garden in the middle of that U shape where they have a little bit of green space. Well, how much sun is that little area actually getting? What kind of quality soil is between all that brickwork and cement? That's something to think about. I've been called out to many a school and they're very excited. They have a plot of land, maybe away from the buildings. They're all excited about planting a garden. And then I ask the question, where's the water? right? We have to have water. And I don't care if you tell me, well, we will haul buckets of water. No, you won't. That'll last one time. It gets hot. That water's heavy. And that garden will not last. Making sure you have the land, making sure you have a water source, making sure that you have a good committee of committed people, including administrators and teachers and even the school nutrition program, parent volunteers, a good group of diverse people ready to support this garden. Those are the top three things. If you have those things, then the world is your oyster in the gardening realm. You'll be able to start small and get more and more teachers involved, more and more students involved until eventually, if everything goes right, you could have every grade have multiple disciplines of instruction in that garden. You're weaving it through the curriculum then and every opportunity you get. Physically need all the three elements that you just said, the sun, the soil, and the water. Those are the big three. And if you have the enthusiasm, I know one of the problems that we've had is I will get a call from a teacher who is in her 20s. She is on fire for the school garden, but she's the only one. She spends a lot of extra of her free time getting the garden started. Eventually, she burns out, gets too busy, gets transferred. It goes to nothing. Having more than one enthusiastic gardening person is imperative for a sustainable, long-lasting school garden. This is something I've always wondered about. The gardening season doesn't match up with the academic season. You start the beginning of the gardening season at the end of the academic years, or at least that's my perception. 
How do you handle through the summer months when there's not anybody at the school? That is the million dollar question. So we like to teach school gardeners to think of cool season crops for what they're growing when the kids are in school. The big point of having a a big community support, having a a PTO subcommittee is handling the work in the summer. So there's a couple of ways we could go about that. You could have uh, parent volunteers or families come and actually work the garden in the summer. And some schools do that and they do it very well. It's very well organized. A family may volunteer for a week and they'll get a list of what needs to be done. Does it need to be weeded? Do we need to take some food to the food bank? Do we need to water? That type of thing. If that's not feasible, which is true for most of the schools in the state, then I suggest a cover crop for the summer or planting sweet potatoes, which require very little effort in the summer. You plant them in May and kind of let them do their thing, and then you harvest them in October. Or put the garden to bed, where you'll just remove the old garden debris and maybe put some pine straw on the top. The last thing you want is for the teachers and the kids to come back to school in August and have a mess because they have other things to do when they first get back to school than worry about a garden that hasn't been taken care of. With over 17 million first-time gardeners coming on board this last year, has it been hard finding seed to grow? Occasionally, a, a local store will run out of seed. We teach our schools when it's appropriate to save seed. We also like to um, encourage people to visit outside the big box retailers and maybe do some of the the smaller seed companies to find what they need. It doesn't take a lot of seed to make a garden. If you can't find a quarter pound of carrot seed, that's okay because half a seed pack will be more than enough for your garden bed. How many school gardens do you have in the state? It's very flexible because unfortunately, most school gardens are not long lived, which is why Extension has really put a push to start with sustainable practices. We estimate that Extension works with a thousand school gardens a year, and that's quite a bit. Yeah. Some counties are bigger than other counties. Cobb County, for example, has a lot more schools than Bacon County does. Cobb County happens to be a school that has a lot of school gardens that work very well with their wonderful Master Gardener program at Extension. Bartow County is another one. Extension office has a person whose main job is to be the coordinator with the school gardens. The average lifespan of a school garden is three years. What that means is the people who were excited about the school gardens get transferred or a new principal comes in who doesn't want to mess with the school garden or the volunteers have decided that that's not what they want to volunteer doing anymore. We're really trying to help in that trend and create more sustainable long-term gardens because the longer the garden is around, the prettier it is, the more yield you get from the garden, and the more attractive it is to teach in. You're doing more than vegetable gardening. Are you doing any ornamentals? What does the mix look like? A school will start with vegetables because we can taste test those and learn about nutrition. And then maybe a pollinator garden comes in next because we're bringing pollinators into our vegetable garden. We're talking pollinators. We might as well talk about monarchs and do the the Journey North Citizen Science Project with a pollinator garden, as well as the Great Georgia Pollinator Census. So right away, just from those two components, you have two citizen science projects your children can be involved in. Then we go into some history gardens. Maybe there's a group that's teaching about World War II, talks about a victory garden, and they plant a victory garden. We also have literature gardens. There's several books like Sarah Plain and Tall. That is a book that talks about how Sarah went out west and missed her home garden. So she planted another one. For younger people, there are fairy gardens where we can talk about 
the folklore of some of the older English plants. So really, possibilities are endless as long as you are a creative thinker. We did have a really cool group of younger students who grew lettuce for a bunny rehab or a bunny rescue place. There was a rescue organization that rescued pet bunnies that were being discarded or maybe their owners didn't want them anymore. Group of kids raised lettuce to help feed those bunnies. The rabbit rescue would bring a rabbit to the school for the kids to see, and they would send regular reports on how the lettuce is helping feed the rabbits. Yeah. That's a little unconventional. You usually don't think about that with the school garden, but it was a huge success. Yeah. On many levels, you're teaching compassion. These kids are empowered because they're making a real difference in the world. School gardens are wondrous and can be just about anything you can put your imagination to. Do you find that school gardens are more popular in the urban, suburban, rural? Where do they tend to take hold? We have a lot of really great urban gardens. There's one at the Atlanta Academy and this teacher and this group that wanted to start a school garden did not have any green space. So we got creative and made some platform beds on concrete. Huh. Some of them have those plant hydroponic plant towers. We also have counties that are like row crop counties where they grow peanuts and cotton and they want to have gardens at their school to show some other things that are grown, maybe some flowers, some pollinator plants, some insect plants, that type of thing. So it truly is a big mix. What other support systems are out there for school gardens? Aside from your local extension agent, I highly recommend that you get plugged into the Farm to School Alliance group. I'm a member of that group. I represent Extension. It is a group composed of Georgia Department of Public Health, Department of Education, University of Georgia Extension, Department of Ag, Georgia Organics. We do something special every year in October. It is the vegetable of the year. This year, and I will tell you flat up, I did not vote for this because it's okra and I do not like okra. So our theme is living la vida okra. Uh, Google that or look up Georgia Organics. There are scads of resources, lesson plans, possible seed giveaways, all sorts of interesting ways that the teachers can pull that off the website, use it in their classroom, and be part of a statewide effort. This year, growing okra. Every year, we pick a different one. They teach how to do real fried okra. <laughs> you know, when I was a kid and my mom made fried okra, you know what I would do? She'd turn her back and I would take them and put them under the lip of the plate. You know that old thing that kids do? Yeah. As an adult, I was working an okra crop and got stung by saddleback caterpillars. Oh, God. And I was like, that's it. That is the universe telling me that Becky needs to do nothing with okra. <laughs> I am a very big supporter of that farm to school. And I think that the creative team has done a wonderful job with making it fun for kids. Another thing to be on the lookout for is our wonderful Ag Commissioner, Gary Black, has given us Ag Week, which is always in March. And the first day of Ag Week is always School Garden Day. Be looking for all sorts of activities, little lesson plans and ways that you can use your school garden on that day to garner some more community support. We're really excited that this will be, I think, our fourth year. And well, 2022 will be our fourth year with the first day of Georgia Ag Week being School Garden Day. How does the school garden transition to like a child's home garden experience? A lot of times the kids will say, I grew lettuce at school and we had it at lunch today and it was so good. Can we grow lettuce at home? That is definitely something that happens quite often. Or we hear this from parents. Johnny won't eat broccoli. He won't touch it. There's no way that he would eat it at home. But guess what? 
Johnny grew broccoli at school. And when a child grows a plant, they are more likely to fry that plant. He had broccoli at school and he loved it. And now he wants to eat it at home. We see that it expands their palate of what they will taste. It also gets them excited about growing something on their own at home. A deeper look into children's gardening coming up. You're invited to ask your garden design, build, or grow question at thegardenquestion.com. Not only do you get the chance to ask your own question, but you might inspire the next episode of the Garden Question podcast. So go to thegardenquestion.com and ask your question. What do you see happening to the children after they graduate? We see them making a difference in their community. Sometimes they go on to do ag as a career, whether that's um, going into farming or ag education. We have this new initiative in Georgia where we're adding more ag teachers to elementary school. We also see them being a little more demanding on what they're eating. We're having less processed foods. They want more real food because guess what? That's what they grew at school and that's what they ate at school. We have farmers who have gone and visited schools. How do you see farmers getting involved in schools? Farmers are a big component in the farm to school movement. Not only are we growing food at schools with their school garden, but we're also partnering with local farms. You know, we've all heard um, farm to fork, right? Well, this is farm to school. Farmers are visiting the schools and talking about food that they grew, that they're eating in the cafeteria. Sometimes these farmers are hosting field trips where the kindergartners or whatever grade can go visit the farm and see the actual food being grown that they're eating in the cafeteria. These kids are making a real connection with food and where it comes from before it gets to your plate. As they grow up and they visit the grocery store, they're going to know that just didn't appear on the shelves. That required hard work from a farmer. That required a lot of dedication and a lot of planning to get that crop from the farm to their school cafeteria or their plate. And we know that Georgia's a big farming state. We grow the best watermelon in the nation. We grow peppers and apples and peanuts and peaches. And to grow up in this state and not know about those wonderful foods would be criminal. That's another Another way that we like to teach the ag in the classroom. What is a pizza garden? A pizza garden, it was a cool phenomenon that actually started in Texas and uh, spread uh, nationwide. And Extension actually did one at the State Farmer's Market for several years. It is a way to show kids where their pizza comes from. Let's say, all right, you tell me your favorite pizza. What's your favorite pizza? I like veggie pizza. Veggie pizza. Okay. So the first thing we got to think about the crust. All right. The crust is made out of wheat, right? Where does the wheat come from? So we show the kids how wheat is grown. And then we have to talk about, you got to have a good tomato sauce, right? And tomato sauce comes from tomatoes and garlic. How do we grow those? If you like veggies, then that's kind of easy. You got the uh, peppers and whatever else you like other kinds of things. If you like cheese, well, cheese comes from milk, which comes from cows. We have a, a lot of dairies in Georgia that help produce milk that make cheese. And then if you like a pepperoni or maybe a sausage, then we have to talk about raising livestock. The kids come to a pizza farm type event. They see all these things being grown, how much work involves. And then every time they eat pizza, they're going to think about how much work goes into making that pizza. You have a big garden event, citizen science event. I think it's how you referred to it earlier in August. Give us a quick rundown on that. August 20th and 
21st. That is the third annual Great Georgia Pollinator Census. This is a citizen science initiative where Georgians across the state will take 15 minutes and go out and find a favorite pollinator plant and count insects. And they upload their insect counts to a website. And this is a no-cost STEM opportunity for schools that have school gardens. They actually can use the pollinator garden they already have in place teach their kids how to count. All that information is on the website. And we have, uh, gosh, close to 150 schools that participate in this project. We have families and individuals and businesses and colleges and all kinds of people across the state participate in the census in August. What's your earliest garden memory? My earliest garden memory was we had, when I was a kid, we had an orchard. We had peaches and cherries, even and blueberries and pears. And as an adult looking back, that wasn't the most sustainable way to grow food because we were just a home orchard. I remember getting out there and picking insects off, waiting for the strawberries to ripen, making blueberry jam. Mm-hmm. I grew my family heirloom beans as a kid. I was one of those kids that when the sun came up in the summer, the screen door slammed as I left. And when the bell rang in the evening is when I came home for dinner. I was always outside growing food, playing, just one of those outdoor kids. How did you decide to pursue horticulture education as a profession? It was just my passion. As a kid, I would go to the library and check out books on bees or flower formations. In high school, I hybridized roses for fun. I had a horse that lived in the pasture that I could whistle and Ed would come running and I'd hop on his back and we'd go riding bareback. It was a natural fit. It was like some other subjects I I was interested in. Horticulture and agriculture kind of just came easy for me. Now, you recently were able to fulfill a lifelong educational dream. Tell us about that. At 51 years old, I went back to pursue a master's degree in a science subject, which meant I had to get back and remember how to do organic chemistry, biochemistry, those type of things. And I finished it in December of 2018. That was a very big day for my entire family, my entire support system. So yes, it was a lifelong dream. I had started graduate school as 20-something and was unable to finish. It felt good to to finish and get that degree, and it has opened a lot of doors for me. Never say you're too old to do things and never give up on the possibilities of life. There's a lot you can do, and your life can change as long as you're willing to do it. First day when you showed up in class and the professor told you that you needed to know organic chemistry, what was your thoughts there? I showed up for class and a lot of it was online. I always tried to go the first couple days in person to get to know the professor so they would understand I'm serious about this. Uh, First of all, I was the only one with a notebook and a pencil. All the other students were taking notes on a computer. I grew up learning how to take notes with a pencil, so I did that. And he said, okay, I hope y'all remember your organic chemistry because you're going to need it. It was 30 years since I had been in school and I wanted to throw up. My first graduate school test, I was so nervous, my hand shook. But I was so blessed to have people believe in me and the professors knew that I was serious. I got a lot of help from unlikely sources. I remember one time being at a a farming conference and I needed to learn how to use a boom sprayer. Now, for those of you who didn't grow up in an ag family, a boom sprayer is a huge sprayer that is hooked to a tractor. I'd never done that and I could do the math, but I didn't have the logic. I was at a conference where I knew there'd be lots of farmers. And at one point I had four or five around me doing diagrams, showing me how they work. My graduate school was a lot of lessons outside of the schoolwork in helping others, in the kindness of people, and 
just dedication and achieving a goal was a, a great experience. And I encourage anyone who wants to do that, even later in life, to definitely go for it. Congratulations on that accomplishment. Thank you very much. In your professional career, who has been your biggest influencer? My first influence, I'd have to say, was my family because I have cockamamie ideas or my husband, God love him. I'll have insects in the freezer. I'll say, I need to go on a night hike to look for lightning bugs. Come with me. My kids, when I was in school uh, during finals time, they had already been through college and they would send me care packages, final care packages, which made me cry. Then I have Dr. Chris Brayman, who's the head of the entomology department. My boss, Sheldon Hammond, I will come up with these ideas like the census and they will say, okay, how would you do it? Go for it. I have friends that are professors, Dr. Clint Waltz, who is a turf grass guy. So we don't have a lot in common professionally, but he's a big advocate. His work ethic is impeccable. I want to live up to the reputation that these people have set for me, that they've set a high bar. And I definitely want to try the best I can to meet that professional bar. What is your most valuable garden mistake? Oh, there's been so many, (laughs) Uh, like many gardeners. uh, And I always have to say a mistake is a lesson learned. My current mistake is we live in the beautiful North Georgia mountains outside Blairsville. I will plant numerous things that the deer eat to the ground. I'm very much aware of deer pressure. I teach classes on deer pressure. They're eating things that I didn't know they'd eat. I didn't know they'd eat milkweed to the ground. I didn't know that they would eat a tree that was probably eight feet tall to the ground. Uh, So these are mistakes that are expensive mistakes that I'm having to deal with right now as the, the deer and I match wits to figure out what I can actually grow in my own garden right now. In front of our cabin, I have an onion garden, which sounds a little crazy, but we have some native onion uh, in the onion family, the southern nodding onion and the prairie onion, which are ornamental onions. So far, they will eat them when they're really young, but once they get some, I guess, onion flavor to them, they leave them alone. You got a second one? Planting tomatoes too close together, something I used to do, and it's an easy mistake. Those tomatoes need airflow to help with some of the diseases that they get. Think about, I'm going to can tomatoes. We're making sauce, and you get them close together, and then they can't breathe. You have a lot more disease issues. You get moisture trapped in there, so your harvest isn't nearly as good. I make the same mistakes everybody does, um, that's for sure. I'd like for you to complete this statement. In my garden, I have. In my garden, I always have insects. Why? Because I plant for insects. I want to watch the beetles. I want to watch the butterflies. And of course, being the beekeeper at the Georgia Mountain Research and Education Center up here, I also love our native bees. So I will always have plants that attract insects. What has been one of your most interesting insects? Well, lately I've been studying lightning bugs. And did you know that In Georgia, we have over 50 species of lightning bugs or fireflies. I've been enamored with those and I've been out trying to learn the different species. With all the insects we have in Georgia, I will never learn them all. In the summer, I try and pick two or three different kinds of bees that I don't know that well and learn about their habitat, learn what crops they help pollinate, what plants they like, and then I will build them and they will come. My favorite memory over the last couple of years is At the cabin, I wasn't sure if we were going to be on the Monarch Trail for Migration South. I've always loved that. and I never had much luck with Monarchs where we lived before. One October, I looked up in the sky to see over 30 Monarchs come out of their migration path to visit my garden. It was almost a spiritual event. (laughs) (laughs) 
build them and they will come. What do you think the key was to your garden that drew them in? I had a lot of tall plants, a lot of Joe Pye weed, a lot of Tithonia kind of built together. Our cabin makes kind of a clearing between wooded areas. We got lucky. The monarchs talked to each other and said, you know, that Becky loves us. We need to come visit her <laughs> because they came down and I lost count at 30 wow. coming down out of there. So that was just a wonderful experience. All gardeners have these stories, whether it's I grew this plant, I never knew I could, or I had the best okra I've ever had, or I grew my grandfather's tomato, whatever. We can always keep learning in the garden and keep having these wonderful experiences that you're not going to get in front of a computer. What are your future plans for your garden? I want to continue to make peace with the deer. I also am continuing building up the wildlife habitat. We have a skunk that lives on our property that I just love watching waddle. We have some foxes. I grow a lot of things, uh, food crops at home in whiskey half barrels to kind of keep them safe from the deer and the rabbits and everything. So just continuing to expand our wildlife habitat, get some more trees growing, figure out some more creative ways to grow some food. What are you seeing as far as wildlife habitat in the school gardens? I'm seeing a trend in the school garden and in home gardens, and they influence each other. And the trend is growing more for nature. Instead of wanting a perfect turf grass field or lawn, we're looking at how can we add some natives, native plants that attract wildlife and that use less inputs like water or chemicals in our landscape. And what will that do for us? Well, what that does for us is it gives us a greater diversity of wildlife, whether that's seeing a bunny for the first time or seeing a monarch butterfly or a bee species that you never knew you had. And leading the way is a professor. His name is Doug Talame, and he's written a couple books. Bringing Home Nature is one of them. His new book is about how important oak trees are. Now, we know that oak trees are beautiful. They are also food source for so many insects that are vital in our overall ecosystem. Just learning about how we, in our small area, our small yard, our small school grounds, or even an apartment balcony, you can attract a diversity of beautiful things that you had no idea were out there, and you can make a real difference in insect conservation, and that's empowering. What are the benefits of insects? Why do we need to keep them? First of all, most people think of insects as pests, unfortunately. The records show only 3% of insects are pests. The rest kind of do things for us. They do things from pollinating our crops, which we've talked about, to decomposing a material that has uh, animals that have passed away in a field or plants that have died. They actually will help check our pest insects. For example, one of the things we count in the Georgia pollinator census are wasps. We don't usually think of wasps as pollinators, although they do move pollen. They like to hang out in a pollinator garden because they're looking for soft-bellied caterpillars to feed their young. It just so happens that things like pickle worms and cabbage worms, all those pest insects that we don't like, are soft-bellied caterpillars. It's very heartening to see an, a beautiful wasp perched on a pollinator plant near a garden bed, swoop down and grab a pickle worm and remove that pest for you. We allow our ecosystem to do some of the work for us. We will have less pests to worry about and we can just enjoy nature more. What do hornets do to benefit your garden or benefit us? Because I've got two nests. Actually, I only have one nest now. <laughs> I mean, what benefits are they? First of all, you have to live there, right? You can't have hornets at the door where you're going in and out because hornets protect their nest. They might not be aggressive, but if they feel that you're going to mess with their nest and their home, they might become a little more aggressive. 
aggressive. So I understand that you want to be safe in your home and I want you to be safe in your home. So if you have to move a hornet's nest, by all means, safely move a hornet's nest. Hornets are also predators, can also pollinate. They actually have a place in our ecosystem. Maybe not by our front door, maybe in the broader ecosystem out there away from you. There is a purpose to them. Yeah, I thought there was. That's why I kept avoiding taking them down. But one of them got after us. And so we eliminated that one. Um, Be careful when you're doing that. They do get protective of their homes. You manage honeybees in Blairsville. Tell us about that. I work at the Georgia Mountain Research and Education Center just south of Blairsville. It is a 400 and I think 15 acre research facility. And as part of that, we have a small apiary. We have right now five beehives in that apiary. They've been used for research, for education purposes. I have the very lovely task I have an enviable position in managing those beehives. I was actually in the hives yesterday, checking on those queens, making sure the hives are healthy, seeing what kind of honey they're bringing in. We've got sourwood about to bloom, and we all know everyone loves sourwood honeys. That's just part of my job with the center is to manage honeybees and to teach about them. The honeybees that we have, are they all European honeybees, or do we still have any native honeybees? The kinds of honeybees that people are managing now came from Europe in the 1600s. We actually have documentation of that. And we run Italian honeybees. That's a race of honeybees. There's also Russian honeybees, different races of honeybees. And some of them have desirable properties. Italian honeybees build up quickly. They bring in a lot of honey and they're kind of gentle. Some of the other bees maybe are a little more resistant to some of the pests that we have. An interesting find several years ago, researchers found a fossil in North America that shows that apis, which honeybees are in the apis group, were here long before the 1600s. So we don't think of honeybees as natives. We have about 4,000 native bees that are also excellent pollinators. Honeybees are really the only ones right now that we manage. What about pressure on the honeybees? What are you seeing that's threatening them? A lot of habitat destruction. Every time we clear what we think is a messy field to put up a strip mall, that is habitat that honeybees could use. Here in May, we had, I think, 25 degrees for several hours when we had had 80 degrees earlier in the month. So that spiral change is is not good for honeybees. We have a pest called the Varroa mite, the Varroa destructor. And that is pest that came in the 80s, and it is terrible for our honeybees. It weakens our colonies and makes them more susceptible to other problems. There is a lot of pressure. It is a labor of love. We have some excellent honeybee keepers and excellent honey makers in our state that are doing a great job, but it's always a challenge. You know, we get imported species, it seems like, in everything. Is there any kind of imported species that are threatening the bees? I know we've heard a lot about the bees coming up from Mexico. There are different species, and they're very aggressive. In South America, they're learning to manage them. They are a lot more aggressive than the bees that we're used to managing. The inbreeding of those bees with some of our Italian bees could be problematic in creating a more aggressive bee for us. But the Varroa mite is the biggest pest that we have, and it is an imported pest. We have a lot of people doing great research on hygienic queens and ways that the bees can combat varroa mites. And hopefully coming down the next few years, we'll have found a way to manage that that pest as well. How do you manage bees and wasps when you see them in a school garden? Does everybody freak out? (laughs) Well, I've actually had to attend a couple school board meetings where somebody wanted to put a pollinator garden in. There is a great group called the Bee Cause, and they help put honey beehives in schools. And of course, that means they're not right by the front door. 
Maybe they're in a different part of the property. But generally speaking, the only time you're going to get stung by a honeybee is if you accidentally smash one or step on one or you seem to be a threat to their hive. If you're out watching your flowers and you're out messing in the garden, unless you accidentally smash a honeybee, you're probably not going to get stung. Wasps are hanging out on pollinator plants. They're not interested in you at all unless you're going to grab them. I always tell this story. I have only been stung by a wasp once, and that's when one died in my house and I stepped on it barefoot. I have been bitten by ladybugs probably a dozen times. A lot of it is the circumstances and how threatened the insect feels. Now, in doing the pollinator census, we this is our third year, so we had two pilot years and two statewide years. I've never been contacted by anyone who's been stung by an insect except for one child who grabbed a tussock moth caterpillar off a plant and that had a stinger on it. It goes to show you, you want to be careful. And if you're allergic, you definitely want to be mindful. But those insects, truly, they're not giving you a second thought. They're out doing their thing. They're getting provisions for their nest. They're collecting honey and nectar. You are a non-issue for them. Let's say somebody's starting to get really excited about the school gardens and they want to know the next step. And we're in the middle of July. Where do they go from here? What do they do to get this school garden started at their child's school? Well, first thing I would do is contact your local extension agent because they have experience with what school gardens are going on already in your county. And then I would do some research, find out have they ever had a school garden, maybe put together a proposal of what you'd like to see in that school garden to be ready for pre-planning. Do some research, and I hate to even say on the internet because, you know, I'm not a big screen person. Look up school gardens to see some examples of what's being done out there. How can that be used? your community. I really like to have the schools think about their gardens individually. For example, if you're at Crabapple Elementary School, what should you be growing in your school garden? Crabapples, right? If you have a school in an area, let's say Sharon, Georgia, which has the darkest skies in the state, what should you be growing in your school garden? Let's say stars, watermelon, that type of thing. Really take advantage of your individual community, your school, your mascot, and make that garden part of the fun of your whole school. I like that idea. We want to make sure that the garden is not too much work on anybody, but a lot of fun for everybody. And if it's well planned out and well thought out and well managed and organized, they will create a sustainable garden that can be used for school kids for years to come. Becky, tell us how people may find you and connect with you. Excellent. Well, the easiest way is through email. And my email account is B-E-C-K-Y-G-R-I at U-G-A dot E-D-U. That's the easiest way to find me. I'm stationed at the Georgia Mountain Research and Education Center for anybody who's ever up in Blairsville. And of course, I do have a website and it is G-G-A-P-C dot org. Becky Griffin, thank you for revealing the benefits and your insights into designing and building a successful children's school garden that works. You are amazing. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. 
Please generously share the Garden Question podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.